We are in this room also without microphones. Um, the event will be recorded though. Um, so please um, keep quiet as possible while the speakers are speaking because we have to do it in the old fashioned, the good old way of just using our voice. Um, so this is another event of the Transnational Law Project. Um, as some of you may know, we have had another event which started out with Rethinking Investment Treaty Law, where we had united um, government officials from five countries who had recently revisited their um, investment in, uh, foreign investment policies and had them discuss about the outcomes of their review and how one should start thinking about really rethinking the system. What could new investment treaties look like? In which direction are we moving? Um, many of you will also be aware that in the European Union we are seeing much activity now. The European Commission has already now launched its second proposal for a regulation dealing with questions of investor state dispute resolution. Um, so the topic is extremely hot and it is at this moment where things are happening because the EU will be absorbing more or less 1,400 existing BITs of the member states and force them into some hundred um, new European investment agreements over the next years. This will certainly take some time, but what is impressive about this is that this will renew about half of all the world's investment treaties over the next years, which means that this is an important moment of time for discussing how can we improve the system? What can we do for making this a better legal system for investors and states, of course? So tonight we have a special occasion because we have a, a specific case study. Um, I'm delighted to have here tonight um, the colleagues from Repsol. We are having Mr. Klingenberg, who is the Deputy Secretary, Secretary General of um, Repsol. We are having to stay first with the Repsol crew, um, <coughs> Carlos Lopez, who is uh, the Head of Inst in, uh, Institutional Relations. And we are having um, Professor Hernandez from the IESE, uh, Professor of Finance. Each of them will give us a different perspective of the ongoing case of Repsol in Argentina. I will not go into more detail about this because these gentlemen will do that, but I hope that we afterwards will have some time for questions and discussions about this topic. Um, I think with that we can give the floor right away to Mr. Klingenberg, who will introduce the case to you. So good evening and thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, let me first uh, thank um, the London School of Economics to give us the opportunity to present this case here. And uh, in particular, I would like also to have special thanks to Professor Pablo Fernandez, who has developed this uh, case about evaluation of the expropriation and that uh, is uh, making public today the uh, results of uh, his survey, who has been uh, uh, published also today, <coughs> yesterday, at the website of the Social Science Research Network. And also to Jan for having taken the time of um, 
organizing this colloquium, which I hope uh, would be of your interest. Uh, indeed, there is a lot to speak about, but uh, first of all, let me give you a brief introduction about what is Repsol, because uh, many of you will probably not know too much about our company. Uh, Repsol is one of the five largest private listed oil and gas companies in Europe. Uh, it's a fully integrated um, oil and gas company operating both in the upstream, so exploration and production, in the midstream, transport and the like, plus in the downstream, so everything which is marketing, refineries and so on. <coughs> Repsol these days is made up of uh, more than 25,000 professionals spread across 30 countries, uh, with more than 36 nationalities in. Uh, quick highlights of YPF. YPF uh, was and is the largest oil company in Argentina, a country with an old uh, tradition in the oil industry, more than 100 years of exploration and production, which was privatized in 1993 by the Argentinian government at that time, and in 1999, uh, Repsol uh, ended up with the takeover, through a public takeover, uh, of uh, YPF. YPF at that time was listed in both the Buenos Aires Stock Exchange and in the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, with all the permits, I would say, and uh, the applause even, from the uh, Argentinian government, um, Repsol acquired almost 100% of the company for $15 billion. YPF in 2011, just to give you an idea, and I think this is important when we discuss about the mechanics of this, uh, uh, what we call confiscation, uh, was 34% of the production, 23% of the reserves in oil, 23% of the production of gas, 19% in reserves, and a much more important uh, percentage of the Argentinian market in refining capacity and market share in the downstream, so basically distribution. Um, the impact of the expropriation, again to give you an idea of what it was for us, YPF represented at the end of 2011, the expropriation took place in 2012, uh, represented 25% of our operating income, so 1.2 billion, 21% of our net income, although it represented 33.7% of the investment effort of Repsol. You can see the figures that we were investing in 2011, 2.2 .2 billion versus a net income of 1.2. And I would like to highlight this figure because one of the reasons why the expropriation was justified with was that we were not sufficiently invested in Argentina. Let me also tell you a bit about our relationship with Argentina. And when I speak about Argentina, please let me make a big difference. Our relationship with Argentina and the Argentinians is and was very good. If we have a problem, it's with the Argentinian government. With the Argentinian government, however, our relationship for years was great, was smooth. As you know, Argentina emerged from, from, from a substantial crisis in the early 2000s, and Repsol controlling YPF was there to support 
are, you know, the new efforts of Argentina to get out of that crisis. Not only Repsol maintain the employment of YPF, but in fact it increased substantially from 9,000 employees in 2000 to 1,600, uh, excuse me, in 2011. And uh, we did our best to, you know, cope with the increased demand on uh, liquid fuels, increasing the production as much as possible, maximizing refinery operations, and helping at that time with the introduction of the liquefied natural gas in Argentina, a country that over this period benefited from a substantial growth, substantial economic growth, in parallel implied a substantial increase in the demand of energy. So, in 1998, uh, Repsol made an effort to argentinize, if you wish, YPF by allowing an Argentinian group to acquire 25% through a tender offer in the stock exchange, so it was a public takeover. Over. Um, it discovered the third largest unconventional hydrocarbon reservoir in the world, in the Vaca Muerta formation. And I think it is worth mentioning that over all this period of time, the Argentinian government got the right to control in the main policies, in the main issues YPF, because it kept and retained its golden share, and uh, they always got the presence at the board of directors. I would like just to highlight a statement made by Mr. Roberto Barata, state representative of YPF board of directors, and at that time National Planning Ministry and the Secretary of Coordination, in late 2011, saying that the state is in full agreement with the activities that the company is developing. However, suddenly things change. And it changed dramatically, one day to the other. It's curious to say that there was a coincidence in timing between the discovery, the official discovery of the Vaca Muerta unconventional reservoir and um, the change in mind by the Argentinian government which suddenly changes public attitude. And there was something which we, frankly, can only characterize as an unprecedented harassment campaign. Threats of nationalization, tons of sanctioning proceedings that suddenly started for the most different reasons, revocation of exploration permits and operation licenses by the provinces, which, by the way, were immediately, again, uh, revoked, but in favor of YPF after the expropriation. The result was basically the appropriation, because we cannot characterize this in any different way, of the control and management of the company, and the deprivation of our rights as shareholders, in what we believe is a violation of the most elementary constitutional guarantees provided for the Argentinian constitution. It was a common and concerted harassment strategy between the central government and the provinces, as I said before. And this was basically, in our view, to create the political and popular climate hostile to us 
in order to justify what was after the expropriation or, as I said before, what we still think is a confiscation of our rights. The consequence of this harassment campaign between January and April 2012 was that the price of the shares of YPF at the stock exchange, both in Buenos Aires and, 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 and New York, fall by 50%. In, after that, the 16th of April, the Argentina's president, Mrs. Kirchner, introduced a bill declaring the hydrocarbon industry of national public interest and the expropriation of 51% of YPF share capital from Repsol. There was a, a decree that same day uh, resolving the immediate takeover of YPF by appointing a government controller which simply went to the offices with police and took over. And a draft bill was sent to the Argentinian Congress for the entering into a law which was finally very quickly resolved by an impressive majority, I should say, of the Argentinian Congress, declaring 51% of YPF share capital out of the 57% owned by Repsol of public interest and subject to expropriation. <coughs> the immediate seizure of the voting and economic rights attached to those shares and giving the Argentinian government two years to start the expropriation, the proper expropriation process. Um, so was the situation ten months later? A formal title of the shares in YPF are still in our hands, although they said nothing, because the voting and economic rights have been basically seized. So they have been confiscated by the government. No price for the, no compensation has been given to us, nor the process has started, at least as far as we are aware of. So that, these are the facts, the basic facts of what has happened. And um, let's go a bit to the law and what we think are the principal violations that the Argentinian government has incurred in this case. Uh, what we can only qualify as the breach of the rule of law. There is a clear breach of the Argentinian constitution because the Argentinian constitution recognized the right to property. The Argentinian constitution recognizes the guarantee of equal treatment and non-discrimination and it's clear that the national government and the Congress of Argentina can declare of public interest the energy sector. They can even expropriate. That's something that the Constitution also provides for, indeed, for good reason, for reasons of public interest, and with no discrimination and proper compensation. And the question that immediately arises is, why only 51% and not at least our 57% or 100% of YPF? Why only YPF and not other oil and gas companies? As I said before, when I was providing you some highlights about YPF, in the pure oil and gas, so exploration and production, where the most important uh, part of that uh, sector is, um, YPF was 30-something only 
So there is a lot of other companies which have not been expropriated. Uh, and um, so therefore, we cannot see how the principle of equal treatment and non-discrimination has been respected. The principle of reasonableness, uh, sorry, this word is quite difficult to say. So uh, there is no reasonability in this, in, in this decision. There is no uh, justice here. And the right to due process, because so far we have not got the opportunity or have been never asked by the Argentinian government about what we think or how we can defend our rights. We are still waiting to hear from the so-called uh, appraisal tribunal about how much is the value of our share in the company. But it's also very important that at the time of the privatization, the Argentinian government enacted a decree to modify the bylaws of YPF as a private company to provide certainty to those investors willing to buy shares at the stock exchange that in case of takeover by any other investors or by the government itself, there was an obligation to launch to make a tender offer in case of taking control with prices which are fixed by, by the bylaws. This was an important guarantee under in this case Perador, this is not international in this case, to investors who were buying shares, or in the case of Repsol, an important guarantee that in case of the government willing to retake control that we were going to be properly compensated. Um, <coughs> no tender offer has been launched so far and there were some declarations by Mrs. Kisilov and the Ministry of Economy saying something that um, you should be fooled if you think that we will pay such an impressive amount of money to get back the control of our own assets. And finally, and this goes much more to the uh, issue of the discussion, is the, uh, the BIT, the Bilateral Investment Treaty between Spain and Argentina, which was entering into force in 1991, where it recognizes their right to fair and equitable treatment. I have already mentioned about this issue and also the non-discrimination. And finally, it recognized the right of the government to expropriate, but with a fair compensation. And as I said before, so far, we haven't seen one penny, or one peso in this case, uh, nor even the apparent intention to do so. So what is our legal strategy? And uh, I'm going to be quite quick, because basically it's to give you a background uh, for discussion. What is our main objective to settle the case? It would be great if we have the opportunity to have a fair discussion and agree on what is fair and get paid. Unfortunately, so far our efforts have been um, not answered uh, by the government. Um, and therefore, meanwhile, and as a public listed company, we only have one alternative if we want to defend the rights of our stakeholders, which is to take all our available legal actions. And we 
in, in this case there are issues which are quite complicated because you have many areas to think about and you want to attack as much as you can uh, but indeed you need to focus in what are the right jurisdictions to raise the different uh, claims so that you don't interfere in one with the other uh, and in, indeed we, we have a number of actions in the US, in Spain, in Argentina, but I would like just to focus on what exactly we try to protect and what is our line, basic line of defense. In, in Argentina, basically, from the very beginning, we started legal actions against the government um, claiming that the procedure, if you can call uh, this a procedure in legal terms, um, is basically legally unconstitutional and that the takeover and seizure of the controlling interest was totally unconstitutional. To give you an idea of how things work in this legal system, so far we are still waiting for our claim to be properly noticed to the government because we have had discussions between different courts to conclude about who was the right court to proceed to provide a notice to the government. In the case of uh, Spain and the US, we are basically, well, there is something which is not mentioned here. We have started a class action in the US um, claiming basically that there is a breach of the obligation to launch a, ten a public tender offer, and this is now uh, in, 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 in US courts with other investors who have joined the class action. Um, but basically, there are a number of actions which basically tend to prevent third parties to take an, what we think is an unlawful advantage from this confiscation. It basically goes to third parties who are trying to make business with YPF on the what we believe are the most important strategic assets of the company. These are the um, exploration and production of the unconventional oil and gas in Vaca Muerta. And, um, this basically goes under Spanish law uh, via a provision in our unfair competition law and also in the US via totus interference. And most importantly, because we believe this is the main venue for um, the protection of our rights, is that we have started an arbitration at Exit in the World Bank in Washington claiming for the restitution of the confiscated stakes or alternative fair compensation and indeed damages. Uh, this is the standard procedure under the BIT and, and probably this would be one of the things that we will be discussing today and probably uh, happy to answer questions. Is Let's go to international investment protection and what we think are the, the issues in, in, in the context, in the broad context that Jan was um, describing before and the new policies and you know what to do with BITs. <coughs> well I think the problem with BITs and the problem we generally can see is that these are very you know simple treaties based on very basic principles of protection outlined in very general terms. And when you start then discussing about how to do to have a defense of your rights, you find yourself 
that there is an international doctrine, well respected, which comes from the different awards in the world of uh, arbitration connected with international public law, but they are not fully binding. So the first thing you have is, well, let's think how to handle my case, because we may face ourselves with quite difficult situations. We, feel, we think that we have a very good case, but generally it takes you a lot of time, it's very time consuming to conclude about where we are. It's a very expensive and long time uh, procedure. The average, and these are exit um, facts in the website, between three to five years to get the final award. And we are not speaking about annulment procedures after that. Uh, in a complicated case as the one we have, one cannot discard the, even baseball more than of that. You know, you start with a notice of conflict and you need to wait, depending on the treaties, for a friendly negotiation time. <coughs> then you need to make the registration of your arbitration. Then you need to wait for the constitution of uh, the tribunal. Then you may have potential disputes about uh, disqualifying uh, arbitrators. Then you may have potential challenges of jurisdiction. Then you have the memorial. Then you have a long process of uh, you know experts and so on and uh, and you end up with an award hopefully and what can you do with the award and I think this is probably one of the key questions to discuss is the enforcement and I think I just go to the flyer that was prepared by by, by the London School and probably by Jan by saying it's not my words that so far Argentina has not paid any single awards which have been tried to be enforced. In certain situations they may have settled cases, but where they didn't agree they have never paid. So that's 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 frankly a big problem. Just to give you an idea of timing, we started our case indeed in April 2012, notifying the existence of a dispute to the exit. A bit more of six months later, we filed our request of arbitration that was registered by exit at the end of December. Only now, in February, we have been able to give notice of the appointment of one of the arbitrators and the proposal of a president for the tribunal. We are now waiting to hear back from Argentina, but more likely we'll wait until the very last minute and probably will not appoint, and therefore we start the procedure of a forced uh, appointment. So again, 10 months later, we are still pending of the constitution of the tribunal. Having said that, uh, we think that we will get final you know, uh, protection. Uh, I would like simply to highlight that <coughs> indeed in, in, in this more and more complicated world where some countries that did enter into this kind of uh, agreements 20, 30 or 10 years ago have suddenly discovered that they are not in their interest and simply they don't respect those. So what to do, and in particular in enforcement. I think there are certain lessons to learn from 
other reforms like the World Trade Organization has found some mechanisms that are recognized as workable. But clearly, in the current business world, I think um, there are problems. And, and I think the investment treaties are not only to protect investors, are, I think, a great tool for countries that need direct foreign investments into them. It's a but, and, and these uh, treaties provide the, you know, the platform, the network for investors to go and invest because they can think that they have or will be legally protected in their investments. If this BIT doesn't work, it would be indeed um, bad for the investors, but I think it would be even worse for those countries uh, that need investment. Well, I think uh, this is basically what I was uh, willing to tell you. Thank you. Uh, and indeed, I would be happy to have a more discussion at the end. Yes. Thank you, Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Kingman. Um, before I pass on to Professor Fernandez, no, you, you can't stay. Um, just a short announcement which uh, slipped my attention and therefore yours. Um, we're having a small drinks reception after this event, so if you can spare another half hour or an hour after this to continue the discussion, we will go to the eighth floor and have a little drink of Spanish and Chilean wine. They didn't have Argentine wine, so it's... Um, with that, we shall move on to... Mr. Fernandez with the valuation of the uh, expropriation, please. Okay, good evening. I teach uh, finance at ESA Business School, and what I mostly do is uh, company valuation. Do, do you hear me well at the end? No. Excuse me? Okay. And uh, as I teach uh, finance, and, uh, and we normally use cases, I try to write uh, cases from time to time and cases that have to do with valuation no? and this, uh, this thing of the expropriation of IPF was, uh, I thought, a good exercise for the students. Later I found that it's an easy, an easy exercise. Eh? There are valuations that are much more difficult to, to do than, than this one because, uh, well, uh, I will tell you a little later. <coughs> Here are the main data. The Repsol had uh, at the time of the expropriation 57% of the, of the shares and the Argentinian government expropriated only uh, shares from Repsol, 51%, but only out of Repsol, the others, they, they didn't do anything. Well, this is in a case that if you are interested, uh, can be downloaded uh, here. Eh? The, the, the case is there, this is just a, a resume. And in the case, I had this question, uh, what is your best estimation of the compensation that Repsol should receive for its expropriated 51% of IPF shares? No? was the only question that I had. Then I put it my, my case there in this, in this network. And then I sent an email to different professors, uh, analysts, some alumni of mine, well, that I have a lot already, uh, 
then uh, some general managers of uh, companies, financial managers, portfolio managers, but mainly professors, uh, people that works in financial companies and people that works in, in other companies, no? asking for this. And I will tell you at the end uh, which answers uh, I have got so far. Here is, uh, this is December uh, 2011, and this is how the IPF uh, price uh, was in the stock market, and this is the Argentinian index. Well, you have to take into consideration that uh, IPF is part of the Argentinian index also. This is a little important because the expropriation was here and when the government started saying things that perhaps they were going to expropriate and so was around here. So this thing of the date, which date is more relevant for the expropriation, uh, could be the day of the expropriation or on January when the government started saying that perhaps they were going to expropriate and, and all that. No? Some events of the pressure building, well, this is in the case that they started in January, saying uh, in the January everything was uh, good about Repsol. Here I, I have some, some opinions of the president. The president uh, is uh, Fernandez, as myself. I am not going to tell you if you are relatives, but uh, uh, she was saying nice things about Repsol uh, all the time and also other people in the government. No? The IPF is our flag company. In December, uh, <coughs> in November, well, was the, the phrase that Miguel told you before that IPF is doing a great effort. Well, and everything was nice, and then all of a sudden, on January they started saying bad things about Repsol and at the end in April was the expropriation. If you are interested in these phrases and more, they are in the case, I don't want to... When I say that this case is relatively easy is because we have a lot of data to value the company. Because first of all we have precedent, a lot of precedent transactions of IPF shares the, the first ones is, are when Repsol started buying uh, IPF, then when Repsol bought, uh, uh, sold part of his shares to the <coughs> to the Peterson Group, and also we have sales of shares from IPF to other uh, to other funds. And here the price per share that you can see that around. 45, 40, 45 uh, has been uh, 40, 45 dollars per share has been. Uh, although, well, uh, you can say uh, what is the price of uh, uh, 13 years ago worth today? Well, but uh, here is uh, the history of prices that, that I got. Apart from that, we had also a lot. Well, a lot. We had some uh, analyst reports with uh, telling which price they, they, the target price or the price that they recommended. Well, here is after the, all, all those problems, but until the problems, prices were between 45 and 55 dollars per share uh, almost in all, in all the analysis. Here, well, after, after January, 
Sunday started the diminishing that, but before almost everything between 45 and 55. The average until February was uh, $50 per share. No? What the analyst said that was the fair value of a share of IPF. Well, and at that time, still, Vaca Muerta was something that everybody knew that was very big and with a lot of oil, but. Uh, but no more than that, no? still the information about uh, the costs of uh, extracting the oil and all that, uh, well, and I think that still today are not clear, at least to me. <coughs> Other things, so we have uh, prices of present transactions, prices uh, from analyst reports, and also there are uh, these bylaws that Miguel told you before, that uh, are uh, in the Repsol, in the IPF bylaws, that they have mainly two articles that say how to establish the price if somebody wants uh, to buy 49% or more of the capital, and here, well, they didn't buy exactly, but uh, they took uh, 51%, no? so it seems that, that this article applies. And here, depending if you uh, take uh, the day preceding the takeover is uh, January, as I told you before, before all this news uh, about saying bad things about Repsol, you take this date, the price comes uh, $56 per share, and if you take just the day before uh, the expropriation, it's uh, $47 per share. This is applying the, the bylaws, but only saying the, the day before this provision, the appropriate day is January, before the government started saying things so that the share price went down, or 47 if it's exactly the day before the expropriation. And here, I think this is also interesting, is the, <coughs> the, the history of the Repsol investment in IPF. No? Uh, this, this column is in uh, million US dollars and this is in euros. This is the investment of the original investment of Repsol, when Repsol bought all the shares. And here are well, the dividends, mainly dividends that, and, and some shares that Repsol sold. The income of Repsol due to IPF along the years. And if you calculate the internal rate of return of that, it's only 1.9%. No? So if the Argentinian government does nothing, so the investment of Repsol would have been a 1.9%, well, which is not a, a very good business. No? This in dollars. If you do in euros, it's, it's negative. No? So it's a... <coughs> so in, in this case, we have uh, mainly the... Re, uh, the share price. We have the bylaws, we have opinions of the shareholders, uh, uh, sorry, opinion of the analysts, and we have precedent transactions. That's why we say that, uh, well, the, this valuation <coughs> is not very difficult. It's much more difficult an expropriation of a company that is not in the stock market, nobody cares about the company, you don't have any <coughs> transaction. Those are more difficult to to value, so I think that the, that the arbitrators of, uh, of this thing <coughs> in, in the World Bank, they will get paid very little, because it's uh, very easy to get uh, to a value. No? 
And the only, uh, the only thing that is not clear here in terms of value eh, is Vaca Muerta. That Vaca Muerta, well, as I say, that is not clear to me. Eh? Perhaps somebody has it very clear and, and I don't know. Uh, Vaca Muerta is a huge extension that it's clear that there, uh, there is uh, a lot of oil there and a lot of, uh, and a lot of gas. But the information uh, still is not uh, very big. No? The, there are some holes that you can get information from there, but the still is not clear which uh, will be the margin that the owner can extract from there because the costs are still not uh, clear if they will be very cheap or a little more expensive. So there is uncertainty. The thing is very big, but still there is uncertainty. So, in terms of the price to be paid by uh, Argentina to, to Repsol, I think that the prices that I mentioned you before, in general, are a minimum. No? Normally you will have to add a little more of Vaca Muerta, because in the stock prices, Vaca Muerta, in some of the analysis, the analysts said something, in others they said that they don't include Vaca Muerta, because, uh, but the information still was very, very little and uh, was not clear, and, and, and I think it's not clear today either. So as I told you before, I sent this case, I, I put uh, this case in the in this web, and I sent a mail to several people uh, to see what they thought about uh, the company, no? asking these specific questions, and uh, I well, and I got uh, a little more than. Well, this, this is until last week. A little more than 2,000 answers. Some answers they only told me literature and so. That they are very interesting, but uh, they didn't give me a, a figure. And uh, 13 of them, they told me numbers that were either very high or very low, and I consider them outliers. The definition of outlier is what the guy that writes the report says, no? Um, and I call them outliers, some of them could be also at uh, I maintain. And the average was uh, $51 per share, which is uh, for the 51%, it means uh, a little more than $10 billion. This is, this is the average. The maximum and the minimum, well, you see dispersion, but this is uh, nothing of dispersion. The things I, I do from time to time, some something like that, asking for prices or for. I may normally do <coughs> a survey on the equity premium that people uses to do valuations every year, and the dispersions normally are uh, much much higher. Here, to give you a better idea. This is the minimum valuation, the next one, and, and all the others, until valuation uh, 1959, that is here. No? So as you can see, there is a big concentration of the valuation uh, here in this value, but this corresponds to the application of the bylaws. <coughs> this is the application of the bylaw, taken as the day before the expropriation. The, well, to, to, to have a better idea, most of you here come from the law field or you do a lot of numbers? No, most of you from the law, no? Well, this is that uh, about, uh, I would say, 
600 people, they all say that the, that the appropriate value is uh, to apply the bylaws and taking as the day before the expropriation, not exactly the day before the expropriation, but January, before the government started doing noise and so on. And these are the things, uh, and those are the people that are about uh, 600 more or less or so. They, they say that the, that the appropriate, the appropriate uh, compensation should be the one that says the bylaws, but taking in, uh, as the day before the expropriation exactly the day before the expropriation, no? not considering that uh, the Argentinian government did uh, those things. <coughs> I did also an analysis by country. Okay, how well I got the maximum number of answers were from Spain. But the average, as you see, doesn't change much from one country to, to another. From the UK, I got also 100. So I, I plan to redo that. Eh? So if you are nice, you read the case and you, you send me an answer. Eh? So I get uh, Because well, what, what is 100, the weight of the UK is very small, no? You're much more important than 100 on this, uh, so. Uh, but here also 50, $51, more or less. And here what I put it is maximum, minimum. And the standard deviation, the standard deviation is very small, no? Of the, that means that the variation of the answers were very different. Also, I got 32 from Argentina. Argentina is the first one uh, because it's alphabetical it's uh, 50, Brazil 48, I don't know what happened to the Brazilians, but uh, well, it is not uh, substantially different. No? The French, they were very happy this day, for example, they said 54, and people from India, that, uh, well, perhaps you, you think, and what cares a guy from India of what happens to Repsol in Argentina? Well, but uh, there are people that likes to, to do valuations and uh, especially uh, some professors, also uh, analysts, uh, analysts that they are in the, in the energy field, well, they, they care about things that happen in other places also. No? And doing the, the split of the answers by, well, companies are companies in general, as opposed to financial companies and professors, well, another, these are people that I got the answer and I didn't know if this guy was a professor or what uh, he was, no? But again, the, the average is basically, uh, basically the same, no? And, and also, this is like the frequency of the, how many people said the 36, perhaps one or nobody. Most of the people said this uh, 47, about 47 dollars, that is what I told you before, and 57 dollars, which, which correspond to the application of the bylaws. This is uh, exactly the day before the expropriation, and this is if you take the bylaw uh, on January, at the end of January, just before the government started with with this uh, news. Well, and if you if you want 
the other document was the evaluations are, well, there I have all these charts, plus some of the people, they answer me just, and they just say 57 or uh, uh, $12 billion, that's all. But other people, they explained uh, how they got to the, uh, to the answer. S some people, they explain a lot. If you see the, this document, there are people that, that, would, that it's incredible how they work. And, and this is all I had uh, to show you. The case plus the, the results that what some people thought. But, but as I told you, this is an easy evaluation from the point of view of the evaluation. Eh? Because we, you have a lot of data. You have uh, data from the stock market. You have uh, analyst reports. You have uh, transactions, some far away in the years, but some uh, quite recent, uh, and you have the bylaws no? that say how much the government has to pay in case they, they take more than 49%, which is the case. Okay, thank you. This was, I think, a very interesting exercise, which I think uh, in the arbitration world will be novel, which is polling scientists and analysts for their opinion of evaluation um, but I'm quite sure that uh, this is interesting information at least for Repsol in order to formulate its claim. Um, we shall now move on to the policy evaluations by Carlos. Thank you very much <laughs> and after me Miguel's presentation on the case and Pablo's uh, evaluation, I want to make clear that this is a public consultation on the value. Obviously, Repsol is going to ask for much more <laughs> than the 10.2 average, 10.2 billion on average. No? I will talk about trends in redefining international investment protection. Thank you. Sorry. I will base my presentation on five main topics. First of all, foreign direct investment, the main drivers of economic growth. Then bilateral investment treaties, the relevant features. I will follow them by investor state dispute settlement. Then I will touch base a little bit on EU investment policy after the Lisbon Treaty. And I will finalize by giving Repsol's vision on the EU investment policy, where we think EU investment policy should be going. Obviously, Jan has a much better view on that, and hopefully, with his closing comments, he will then create the debate. Foreign direct investment as a main driver of economic growth. In 2011, world foreign direct investment inflows amounted roughly to $1.5 trillion in the developed economies, accounting basically for 49.1%. The allocation of that investment was 14% in the primary sector, 46% in manufacturing, and 40% in services. East and Southeast Asia accounted for 22%, and Latin America and the Caribbean for 14.2%. It is important to notice that uh, foreign direct investment in Latin America and the Caribbean increased by 16% to $217 billion, driven mainly by higher flows to South America who from 2010 to 2011 increased by 34%. In 2012, we expect foreign direct investment to reach roughly 1.6 trillion, 
with a moderate growth forecasted for 2013 and 2014. In 2013, we expect roughly 1.8, and in 2013, 1.8, 2014, 1.9 trillion. This data is extracted from the World Investment Report published by UNTAD in June 2012. Moving to Latin America and the Caribbean, as you can see from the graph, and these 270 billion are mainly allocated in Brazil, Mexico, Chile, and Colombia. And in general terms, FDI in South America has an allocation in, primary, in the primary sector with 58% and in services with 38%. If you look at the allocation in the Central American and Mexico, 47% is in services, whereby the manufacturing industry accounts for 40%. The increase of investment in the region is mainly due to the expansion of consumer markets, high economic growth, and the natural niche for resources. Uh, you see Latin America is huge in, in, in metals and mining, agriculture, and, and also oil and gas. Europe, and this is important, is still the main origin of foreign direct investment in the region, accounting for over 40%. It is followed by the United States and Canada with 25%. Within Europe, the main investors are the Netherlands with 21, Spain with 14%, and the UK with 4%. One important uh, <coughs> uh, point is that the, the, the region policy trend, and the region policy trend is shifting towards a greater use of industrial policy in these countries, with the aim of increasing production capacity and boost manu the manufacturing sector. How are the countries doing it? And this is where we think the, the problem lies with more state regulation and with that it's manifest by having more entry barriers also they have more stringent criteria on licensing and they defend the, the domestic production for public procurement so this is a little bit of background on FDI how is foreign direct investment regulated and I think Miguel touched base a little bit before it is basically regulated through bilateral investment treaties Worldwide, there are over 2,500 bilateral investment treaties signed. Spain, as an example, has currently signed 72 bilateral treaties with third countries. The bilateral investment treaty between the Kingdom of Spain and the Argentinian Republic was signed in 1991. As a very basic concept, the bilateral investment treaty is a binding agreement between two states in which each assumes obligations with respect to investments made in its country by others' investors. There are four key provisions in the bilateral investment treaties that protect, to some extent, investors uh, investing in those countries. One is national, treat national treatment. With national treatment, it ensures that foreign investors receive no less favorable treatment than nationals. And this is key for investors not to suffer discrimination versus local businesses. The most favored nation treatment ensures that investors are treated as favorably with the host, host state as any other third party. And this is key to guarantee the quality of competitive conditions. Both national treatment and most favored nation treatment are an universally accepted relative standards of treatment. Moving to fair and equitable treatment, it is an absolute standard of treatment and it is what investors <coughs> expect the fulfillment of the, of the investments having a stable and predictable legal framework which provides transparency, due process, due diligence, 
consistency and no arbitrariness. And finally, protection for investors. Investors need a framework that, uh, that is free for importing capital. They need free access to the exchange markets. They need also free transfer of funds. And very important, they have, they have to provide adequate and effective compensation in case of expropriation. In this point, I want to touch base also with Pablo's presentation because what is an adequate and effective compensation in case of expropriation? It is the fair market value of the asset immediately before the threat or announcement of expropriation. And here, it's open for debate, what is that date? Is it January or is it April? So, but here, according to the law, it is the moment where the threat is, is known. I think Miguel touched base already on this point, but uh, on, the, on the BIT signed between Argentina and, and the Kingdom of Spain, uh, the YPF case has really breached or violated several <coughs> principles or, or articles that are included in, in the BIT. The expropriation is discriminatory. The YPF expropriation law is directed only <coughs> towards Repsol. No other oil, oil and gas company in Argentina has been affected, and no other shareholder YPF has been affected. The Argentinian government, as Miguel mentioned, expropriated only 51% of the shares that were in hands of Repsol. The Peterson Group remained with 25, and the 17% that was listed in the stock market was also not affected. The expropriation requires a payment or judicial allocation before the state takes hold of expropriated asset. No adequate or effective compensation has happened, and even more, we haven't received any payment at all. Instead also of assuring that the hydrocarbon sovereignty of the country with expropriation law, expropriation seems to have been designed to wrongfully punish and unfairly treat Repsol. Argentina effectively took control of both companies, of YPF and YPF gas, with a consecutive loss of rights and the physical expulsion of Repsol from the country. We have seen here, like let's say, the, the background of foreign direct investment. We have seen how foreign direct investment is regulated with bilateral investment treaties. And now we go to the point of what to do. What do investors do in investor state disputes? They have different arbitration jurisdictions where they can call upon to uh, channel their claims. I would say there, there are more, but the, the four main are ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, UNCITRAL, which is United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, and then you have the Stockholm, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce and the International Chamber of Commerce. As of the end of 2011, <coughs> as you can see in the graph, there were 450 cases of known investor state disputes. 62% were filed with ICSID under the World Bank um, framework. 28% with UNCITRAL, and 10% with other arbitration bodies. Up to 2012, ICSID had registered 419 cases under the Convention and Additional Facility Rule. Important by, by economic sector, we had 25% in the oil and gas and mining, 12% in the electricity, <laughs> power, and energy, and 11% in transportation. 
In 2012, remarkably, only 50 new cases came, and they were allocated 60% on the basis of consent in BITs, 12% breaching investment law of the host state, and 30% investment contracts, defaulting investment contracts between investor and the state. I'm going to move to what we believe, and this is a view, is really the most known and used arbitration mechanism, which is basically ICIT, the International Settlement for Settlement of Investment Disputes. In 1965, the Convention on the Settlement of Investment Disputes was signed under the auspices of the World Bank, really creating a milestone towards establishment of an international legal framework protecting and promoting foreign direct investment. The Convention set up the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, providing for the first time an international and highly delocalized institutional machinery for the settlement of disputes arising out of investments. What is important also, and, and I think is also uh, questioning sometimes the effectiveness of this arbitration uh, panel, is that despite ICSID is worldwide accepted, there are countries, several, in the, several states in the American Hemisphere that continue to be distant from ICSID. Canada, Cuba, Mexico and the Dominican Republic, as well as, as Brazil, Russia and India, are not among the 158 states of the ICSID Convention. More to that, there are countries that in the recent future also have left ICSID. Bolivia left in May 2007, Ecuador in July 2009, and most recently Venezuela in January 2012. This has created also certain skepticism on ICSID, but we believe it should be dispelled through international reinforcement of this institution. I think on the bottom of the slide you see that since 1965, since the creation of the ICSID, Argentina has been the country who has been appearing in most cases as a respondent, 49 cases including some which have been settled or discontinued. Followed by Venezuela with 36, Egypt with 17, and Ecuador with 12 cases. Argentina has 26 pending cases in ICSID, more than any other country. So far, it has refused to pay any of the tribunal judgment. And now we move to the EU investment policy after the Lisbon Treaty. EU investments, EU states account more or less for 50% of all the investment abroad. This will be the biggest export of investment globally. There are approximately about 1,200 BIT signed by uh, European countries with third states. And since December 2009, with the entry in force of the Lisbon Treaty, it has extended the scope of the common, common commercial policy to the regulation of foreign direct investment. Investment now presents itself as a new frontier for the common commercial policy, and it's now the exclusive competence of the European Union. What we believe is that in the future, as Jan mentioned, will take, will take years, the EU investment platform vis-a-vis -vis third countries will be gradually enriched, having a common investment protection features or standards in the EU investment agreements of the future. Now here's something. 
doesn't matter. There's some problem with the slide. I will, I will talk about it. No problem. Towards on the communication, the integration of the investment into the common commercial policy arose really in the trade negotiations, the free trade agreements of EU Canada, EU India, EU Russia, and EU with Mercosur. In December 2012, there was a, a transitional legislation allowing really for a, a grandfathering of all the bilateral investment treaties up to 2009 with the, with the implementation of the Lisbon Treaty and also setting up the new rules for the negotiation under the EU scope of new BITs of countries that are not immediately scheduled for the EU-wide EU investment negotiations. Here, Unfortunately, you cannot see that I had a picture of, of Kyle de Wucht, who is the Commissioner of Trade, who made a very clear uh, remarks regarding the importance of this legislation, although it will take years. And he made also like a, a reference to the Repsol Argentina as a case in point. And that obviously with the new treaties, investors should have a higher <coughs> degree of protection. Ah, sorry. Well, here you have it. Mr. De Gucht, the European Commissioner of Trade. Now, the Repsol vision on the EU investment policy. I think here it's also quite open to debate, and, and we have put forward our thoughts on how the, the new, new EU investment treaty approach should be built really on, on the BIT's policies and practices that are already existent by EU member states. And we believe that the current ICD arbitration procedures need for, to find additional enforcement measures in order to enable the completion and payment of arbitral awards. How, how can this be done? We need more enforceability. And we have the example of the US Trade Act under the U.S. Trade Act, there's Section 301, whereby the U.S. Treasury can impose <coughs> commercial penalties to countries who are not complying with arbitral awards. <coughs> Obviously, this applies to U.S. companies, but it's an example. We need also a more coordinated position of EU member states and the European Commission in international financial institutions, like the World Trade Organization, OECD, the World Bank, the IMF, the IDB, and, and we need a strongly coordinated position also in the voting, in the case that member states have to vote, we believe, against countries or against financing projects in countries that are not complying with arbitral awards under ISIC, or that have also pending outstanding claims with the Paris Club. And finally, it is also our view that the EU should seek to establish alliances with other countries like the United States and other countries with similar perspective in order to strengthen the rule of law and the mechanism of investment protection. I think there's a long way to go. I think Jan can give us a little bit more insight. But uh, we believe we're on the right track and uh, hopefully we can also uh, use it at one point in, in, in our advantage at Repsol. Who knows? But well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, 
I just want to wrap up with some concluding remarks and observations so as to stimulate some discussion. I think what we have seen is <coughs> the case which could be qualified as a foreign investor's classical nightmare. You go into a country, you establish good relationships, and all of a sudden everything goes down the drain because of what is technically called political risk. Um, out of political opportunity, out of political decision-making process, um, however it is, uh, however that decision is then made, comes an expropriation. Um, <coughs> what we've seen quite clearly from the presentations is that the problem are not, in this case, uh, the standards that have to be applied. What is really the problem in this case is probably your expectation of having to pay a couple of million US dollars for your legal defense of your rights in an investment arbitration with the prospect of maybe never ever being capable of getting the money that an award in your favor would bring. Because, as I said, Argentina has not paid up on awards. Maybe just a very little word on why Argentina is not paying. Their official explanation is that they are still willing to honor its, their obligations, but you will have to come to Argentina and go through the enforcement proceedings in Argentina. And <coughs> that, of course, is the way they propose it, not in line with the exit convention, which provides for an unconditional obligation to pay conditional only on defenses of immunity. Um, so far, no investor, uh, to my knowledge, has actually tried this, to take an award to Argentina um, uh, uh, in the expectation that that is going to be a huge waste of time and money. Um, so what to do with the existing system that we have? On the one hand, we have calls for maximizing investor protection. Um, we do see that also in the very recent statement of the, uh, the, the EU um, after the negotiations, or rather the, the, the high-level uh, expert group uh, discussions between the US and the EU for a future comprehensive trade agreement between the US and uh, the EU, where it was highlighted that the future rules for investment protection should um, provide maximum investor protection and follow the lines of the existing practices in, uh, uh, on the different sides, on the two sides of the, of the ocean. So if we talk about maximizing investor protection on the, at the same time, you must be thinking about the question of enforcement because what good is a piece of paper on which, or usually it's a 200 pages or 400 pages award which condemns a country to pay for violating certain standards, but afterwards there is no effective mechanism for enforcement. The exit convention, as I mentioned, has already probably the most, um, uh, 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 the strongest language in this respect that an arbitral award rendered at exit shall have the same, should be enforceable like a judgment of that country's highest court. And nevertheless, of course, this is international law. We do not have sanctions that will enforce this as we have in national law. Several aspects of enforcement have been highlighted. What do we have today? We do have Section 301 of the US Trade Act of 1974, which indeed provides for the possibility of suspending trade benefits, which has happened with Argentina. One has to be fair, the amount that this represents is rather modest. It does not really affect the Argentine um, economy uh, uh, in such a way that it would change the government's mind. 
If other countries impose the same sanctions, however, one could get to amounts which could put more pressure on a country. At the same time, we have to reflect on questions such as linking um, investment treaty protection, maybe with free trade agreements. This has been attempt attempted already um, in the context of, as you may know, there was the attempt to negotiate um, a multilateral investment uh, agreement on investment in the 1990s in the context of the OECD, which failed due to public pressure and protest. Then the topic was moved on to the WTO, and investment was one of the four Singapore issues, which was to be included in the negotiations for linking investment protection with trade issues. This was um, ultimately also met with quite some resistance. Um, resistance from the civil society, from NGOs, which led to the protests of Seattle in 1998 and the abandoning of the Singapore points, but also resistance, for example, from Brazil and India, who feared, actually, the sanctioning mechanisms of the WTO. The basic idea would be, if there were violations of international obligations relating to investor protection, then sanctions at the trade level could kick in, as we know them at the WTO level <coughs> today for violations of WTO law, which means um, imposition of barriers to imports from the country that is being sanctioned. Um, <coughs> achieving this in the future will be very difficult, especially because there have been attempts in the WTO to obtain this. This has failed so far and would need much more political uh, intention to bring this about. What could be, however, an interesting way to pursue is, of course, that in the future, bilateral investment treaties will be substituted, at least from the, those of the member states, by European um, investment agreements. And actually, these European investment agreements will mo uh, primarily be part of a free trade agreement, so a chapter within a free trade agreement, which could permit linking, coupling the obligations under the investment chapter with those obligations and the sanctioning mechanisms in the other trade chapters. <coughs> the question is whether we want this. I'm quite sure that investors do want this, to put teeth to the guarantees that have been given to investors. What is legal certainty about, ultimately? It's not only about getting a piece of paper which says award and a big number. It is also about the possibility of actually hoping for um, respect and uh, compliance with that. <coughs> On the other hand, <coughs> legal certainty is also about the content. And here is, I think, where maybe we will see some movement, especially at the European level. What do I mean by this? Um, Mr. Klingenberg has already mentioned most of the existing BITs of the member states are actually quite simple. They are four pages long. They are very brief descriptions of the standards of protection that have to be respected. And they are ultimately subject to interpretation by arbitral tribunals. That is a subject which has stirred quite some concern. As you may know, the United States has revised its BIT strategy, its model BIT, out of the experience with NAFTA, which meant for them the US have been sued in a number of cases by companies from Mexico and Canada, therefore pushing the US to rethink its strategy of simply saying we maximize investor protection by giving them very short, very broadly framed uh, 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 standards of protection. 
the move has been towards something more elaborate, something more detailed, something that forces Abu tribunals not only not to free-floatingly find the actual, actual rules that have to be applied, not to be in the law-making process, but rather to be actually interpreting and applying the law as it should be in judicial function. Canada has followed this proposal, and <coughs> we are now, of course, seeing the question, will we see this development also in the European Union? This is why I want to, for the sake of discussion, quickly disagree with um, Mr. Lopez. The EU investment treaty approach should build on the BIT policy and practices of the EU member states. That would mean just perpetuating the existing short BITs that we have. Shouldn't we be moving to something much more comprehensive, something much more balanced, something which actually spells out the rights and obligations of the investor and the state? If we do this, at first sight, this might sound like diminishing investor protection because you're taking away from the arbitrators the possibility of juggling with very vague standards. But actually that also is not so favorable to the investor. Many practitioners will recognize that investor state arbitration today is a little bit of a gamble. It's a little bit of a lottery. Not in quite clear-cut cases like we might have to see here. <coughs> Most cases run around the fair and equitable treatment standard. And we will see very divergent interpretations of this. Even though there is some doctrine that is evolving, we will always have arbitrators that will side with states. We will always have arbitrators that side with investors. And that alone will make that we will ultimately end up with not so much convergence as we would like for having actual legal certainty. Legal certainty in the sense that we know in advance what the investor is entitled to and what the state is obliged to do. <coughs> How does this link to enforcement? Why are there resistances to go further? Why are there resistances to actually adopt much more efficient enforcement mechanisms like, for example, linking investor protection uh, <coughs> to trade issues and using also sanctions provided and existing in the trade, uh, uh, in the trade the world? Partially it's probably because states are reluctant to commit to very strong sanctions because they don't know so much about the outcome. And now my following proposal just for the sake of debate tonight. If we move to a system which does not merely build on existing policy and practices of the member states, but actually starts to elaborate and actually starts to develop investor protection rules which are detailed and which start to resemble something that we do have at the existing national level. Are investors actually worse off if this comes together with more enforcement? What I'm saying is ultimately investors going abroad, what do they need? What kind of guarantees do they need? Do they need the possibility of getting more protection than they have in their home country? Do EU investors that go to Argentina, do they want to get more protection than they have in the EU? My proposal is that that's not the case. If you can get the guarantee that EU standards of protecting investments are also applied to cases for investment in Argentina, I would guess most European companies would be perfectly happy because then they could operate there as they are operating here. There is no huge transaction cost. The political risk is within a stable framework. So specifying and being, being more precise on the actual rules of investor protection, in my view, does not actually diminish 
investor protection as such, especially if it comes at the quid pro quo of saying, we provide more legal certainty not only to investors but also to states to what their rights and obligations are, but we also have a true commitment to legal certainty in the sense that once the Arbitral Tribunal has determined on that specific and elaborate basis what the rights and obligations are, then we go all the way with enforcement and we use everything that international law provides for. That would be a true commitment to the rule of law and to legal certainty. <coughs> And I think it would be useful to think about that now in the process of defining the future European investment policy. It would lead on the one hand to a more balanced and sophisticated approach to investment protection and at the same time would actually give investors what they're longing for, which is legal certainty and that includes enforceability. With those remarks, we have fortunately a little over half an hour left for questions that you might have to the individual uh, presentations, questions that you may have to the entire panel, and of course your opinion. So if you want to ask or contribute, please stand up, say from where you are and your name, and then try to speak as loud as I am <coughs> and don't lose the voice over it. May, may I raise one? Yes. No, no comment, but because I want to clarify the situation when I say the new EU treaty approach should be built on the VAT policy. I think here, there's a clarity, there's a, two different approaches. The NAFT approach, which is way more, as you mentioned, clear and precise in definitions, and, yeah. mo and more the European approach, which is more vague. For me, here's a different perspective. Obviously, the, the state would like to have, probably, this is my view, because we don't have to forget that this goes to an arbitration panel. More options to say, what is national treatment? Like for like circumstances, for instance, where you have to prove, in addition to the national treatment that is like in the local market, or do you want to have a vague interpretation? That's the other thing. It depends who, from what side you see the treaty, from the, the country or from the private investor. Nobody, that, that, that is the remark I wanted to make here. Sure. Because the more, the more clarification you put, the more variables you put into the ar arbitral procedures to comply with. You can comply in three, maybe not in one, it's not national treatment. Oh. So it, is, it has its pros and cons of that clarification. My, my argument in that respect is yeah. we, we do have the notions of state liability in every member state. Uh, a Spanish investor in Germany will probably be quite happy with the standard of protection that he gets there. It will not be anything possibly comparable to a BIT. By the way, there is no BIT between Spain and Germany. There's no BIT between any European, Western European country. Of course, we have the intra-EU BITs with the Eastern European countries, which at the time served to securing the investments in the East. <coughs> we don't have any North-North we, the Energy Charter Treaty is, is the only grant exception where we do have the members of the European Union as members of the Energy Charter Treaty and the Union itself. Um, although that raises quite some questions whether can we apply that treaty in the intra-EU context. Um, <coughs> the basic takeaway is, however, it sounds, sounds awful, but the more developed countries do offer investor protection through their own constitutional systems. We heard that 
if we take the black letter of the Argentine constitution, we probably would have a rather straightforward case. The problem is the application <coughs> by Argentine courts under the potential influence of the Argentine government. We have similar cases with Russia. The Yukos case will resonate with most of you, where Dutch courts and even English courts have not shied away from saying, in any matters related to gas, oil and gas, the, in, the in, interest of the Russian government and the members, the individuals in the Russian government is so high that we cannot expect Russian courts to be impartial. That is the context where we, <coughs> of course, seek an international treaty by saying, well, ultimately, if the constitution of Argentina cannot be applied in a proper way and is not applied in the proper way, then we seek the protection from an international tribunal. The international tribunal then has to rely on its own standards. My point being that if we can come up with investment treaties that actually reflect the same degree of certainty that we have within, uh, let's say, the most advanced countries, the countries that have the highest level of protection, that <coughs> distilled out of a comparative study put into an investment treaty should certainly meet the expectations of most investors who are not there to gamble. When, when Repsol went to Argentina in 1999, it's not to gamble to ultimately get a huge award on damages. What you go there for is you want a stable framework, you want to make profits with your activities. So <coughs> if, we, um, if we try to conceptualize the, uh, the investment treaties in the future in that way, maybe we then have also a good argument for saying, well, we do give the state enough policy space. We do give the arbitrators enough tools for deciding the case on a basis that is really in line with legal certainty and not in line with some lottery logic. And then, therefore, we can also commit to whatever the arbitrators actually find must be enforced and go forward and be more <coughs> courageous with the mechanisms that international provide. Yes, please. Can speak up, please. Good evening. I'm um, theory of jurisdiction has that case been brought, uh, and what's the definition of the clause? Okay, uh, I thought I'd just wait, but you hear me clear. Uh, it is in federal courts in the southern district of New York. Uh, it is basically based on the fact that the shares of, to make it simple, <laughs> I'm not a US lawyer, so I can only give you a summary of what it is about. Uh, it's basically based on the fact that the shares of YPF were listed in, in the US, in New York. Secondly, there is an attraction of jurisdiction because the shares that were sold to the public were sold by the national government in the US and in the context of a commercial activity and not in the exercise of sovereign um, jurisdiction. So therefore it's, it's the theory that when an investor or a, a sovereign is acting as a private uh, entity or on a commercial basis then they 
are not protected by sovereign immunity in that case, and because of all the actions and the sale and the, uh, in the uh, were made in the U.S. then they uh, their jurisdiction in the U.S. Or this is what we are claiming for. Uh, the class is basically defined as investors that were shareholders of YPF at the time of the expropriation. In basic terms. I don't know whether I answered your question. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you know, you can stand. Yes. <laughs> um, Jessica Gladstone from Devonboys and Clinton. Um, thank you very much for your presentations, which were extremely interesting. Um, I was interested in particular because um, one of our clients faces a frighteningly similar situation to that that Repsol have experienced. Um, and I wanted to ask a question about your um, the limbs to your strategy in, a, in dealing with the with the situation that you're in, um, and in particular. Um, I'd seen at the time that the expropriation was announced that the Spanish government made some very strong statements um, in defence of Repsol um, against the action taken or proposed by Argentina. And I wondered if discussions with the Spanish government had continued and um, whether there was any chance of further involvement um, by Spain on behalf of its investors. Uh, vis-a-vis Argentina. Well, um, to be honest, thank you for your question. Uh, I'm sure that you know much more than me. Uh, came from a general background. If I was a tax lawyer, so uh, these days I'm basically a generalist. How is it that? Um, I think we feel supported by the government, generally speaking. Um, we also understand that the government needs to represent Spain. Uh, and therefore, they, they need to balance the general interest of Spanish investors in Argentina. And we know that there are other relevant investors, many of them there. And there is also a, one of the largest Spanish uh, colony in the, in the, in the best places uh, outside Spain. I don't know how many, but there are thousands of Spanish nationals living in Argentina. Not all born, but uh, many of them because they got the right to get the Spanish nationality. Having said that, we feel supported. I don't think that it's easy the more, unless, and I'm now speaking on a very personal basis, there is a consensus between the government and not only the subject of the expropriation, but all other investors that probably may be under similar circumstances in the future. I'm not saying that all other investors have not been uh, sympathetic to our position. I know the balance should not be easy for a government to decide how and, and how to push when you need to balance all the things. What I can say is if I were an investor in Argentina which has not suffered an expectation, I would be probably thinking twice what should be my reaction or my attitude 
uh, in these kind of situations. And, and, and I would like just to make a comment on, on this basis, going a bit, just to put an example, is we were very grateful to the chief executive of a French company, Total, <coughs> basically at the time of the expropriation said something like, I'm not going to do business with these people. This is not uh, good standards. And if the government is behaving in that way, don't count on me to do business uh, uh, at the cost of Repsol. He was referring to the fact of this Vaca Muerta, a large uh, potential uh, um, how you say, uh, reservoir, because it's, um, and where we have seen some companies, uh, Chevron or Ipatipola, um, going there and making or trying to make deals with um, the YPF on these specific assets. Well, Mr. De Marguerite basically said, I'm not going to uh, play that game. And I think probably this is the way where people and other governments may think twice that it's not as easy as simply exterminating. And I understand, but having said that, yeah, we feel that the government has been there and probably we may say, yeah, we would have expected a bit more, uh, but uh, we also may understand that there are things to do. Argentinian government and they related 
de price that the Argentinian government should, should pay to the, to the market value of the shares. No, but here, uh, and, and apart from that, I said that this valuation is relatively easy, apart from Baca Muerta, the thing of Baca Muerta, that I think that the, the question of Baca Muerta, the more time uh, passes until the sentence or whatever you call this thing of the 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 more time it passes, the more information uh, will be about Baca Muerta to calibrate better the, the value that I think is huge, but it's uh, difficult to calibrate. The company itself, uh, looking at uh, what analysts say, what bylaws uh, <coughs> say, what uh, present transactions, all the values we are in, in a little hole. I, I have one other question, I, uh, it's quite a general one. You, you, you work or you study? Um, I work. Uh, uh, former student. Ah, Thomas. Ah. <laughs> um, what is the, the status of the, the reservoir at the moment? I mean, have there been oil, have there, has there been oil discovery? More than just one shows? I mean, has it been sort of um, categorized in, in, you know, in terms of I, I am a poor finance professional. Professor Fernandez has basically made his exercise based on public information, so he's, he has not got to, you know, he has yeah, everything in the case is basic, public basic, basic information, and, and I think there are, <coughs> probably is not easy to get, I think, in this exercise. Probably if you go to the doctrine in uh, international law, and in these cases, uh, the method that is generally accepted, I think, would be the discounted cash flows. Uh, probably there is no, in the case you cannot go and try to make a full exercise about discounted cash flows for the future, in particular because of this Macamorta. What was your question about this, the, the last one? Just um, what stage of discovery or um, you know, exploitation is it at? I mean, has there been production? Has production started? Uh, production has, but it's in the world of reserves, of oil reserves, you have different, you know, experts. Ryder um, Scott and others, which would certify uh, what are you know the different levels of reserve that you can book in your accounts, right? And this is quite regulated and, uh, by the Security Exchange Commission in the U.S. and other other methods to account for that. Uh, right now, it has only started production, but. It is certified that there are approximately uh, potential reserves up to 23 billion barrels, if my recollection is correct of the numbers. Could you repeat again how much? 23, up to 23 billion barrels. Barrels. Of oil or natural gas we are talking about? I think it's, oh. it's both. I think it's barrels are equivalent. Yeah. It becomes to the third largest world uh, reservoir. So. Uh, it is the, the issue there is that there was a full plan to develop that, which required it's approximately some 37 billion of investments. And uh, since the expropriation, uh, I think White has been unable so far 
to start this process of investment. Uh, because they don't have the resources, the financial resources, nor they have the, uh, the food, the technology which is required for this kind of unconventional oil and gas production. They have tried hard. In fact, they have replicated the model that Repsol was trying to replace. Because Repsol was also willing to partner with other oil companies to split this massive investment uh, effort. So, so far, there's very little done, but I think it's basically because YPF has failed so far in that process. Please. I'm Marcela Dallas. I'm from Argentina. I'm studying here. So. I, I worked for the government for many years, actually. I was working with them when that happened. You can exchange, you can exchange her for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was thinking is uh, today in the, in the Argentinian newspaper, it appears that the government is negotiating with La Caixa. How do you pronounce it? La Caixa. La Caixa. Yeah. Uh, uh, to give. Uh, part of the shares of Baca Muerta as a way of compensation. Don't you think it's a, a way to resolve the things uh, without uh, avoiding all these processes from four or five years? Because sometimes I think that Repsol is relying on the fact that the government is going to change and the opposition is going to be the next government. Uh, I don't know, with our history paying debts, I don't think that the next government, even if it's part of the position going to place. <coughs> it could be a solution or not. It's impossible. Well, I, I think, uh, don't trust newspapers. Sorry, this <laughs> 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 the shares of YBF in Argentina, Merval, went I, up. So. I think, leaving aside these, these uh, rumors from, from newspapers, and we have public also uh, answer to that. Uh, we are open to negotiation, but I think negotiation needs to have, you know, a proper procedure. And first of all, you need to start by at least establishing a fair value or agree on that. No, yeah, we but uh, and then you can be flexible and understand the circumstances and try to, uh, you know, agree on how. I. I understand that in practice, Americans say, you know, we get an award. We are not claiming 10 million, we are claiming much more than that. So I think I would like to say this is an exercise. The bylaws are there, but there are many other things uh, around this case. And I know it's not going to be easy to get 10 million or whatever amount of money. Although the company is there, and apparently investors will value for that. So why we should accept? Why we should accept that somebody can come, say, it's for me, it's a risk company, was paying substantial amount of dividends. We were basically attacked because we were paying dividends. I, I think in the, one of the numbers that shows Professor uh, Fernandez's uh, case is that our return so far is negative. You lose negative. Having said that, you know, we also need to think in our shareholders. <laughs> what is the 
right level. We, we simply need to accept that it's going to be very hard to collect money from Argentina and just take whatever they pay for. But it's, I mean, it's a reality. <laughs> I don't well, know that. I think that one needs to also uh, trust on, on the rule of law. One needs to make an effort on that route. One needs to think that perhaps things may change. Uh, doesn't mean that we will say, well, you know, I want, as I said, 10 billion in, 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 in US dollars notes. But I think we cannot simply say, whatever comes, so say the example that you have mentioned is an example. So they come now and say, I, we expropriate you 51%, we will pay you with 20% of the company you have been expropriated. <laughs> you, you can take this project and say, well, this is what it is. Uh, we are not yet up to that moment to simply accept whatever is offered, I think. Yes, please. You have to speak up a little bit, sorry. My son Slade, the same as LLP. I've had a couple of questions about commercial thought process of Repsol in starting a claim against a country that hasn't honoured an award against it yet. Firstly, was there any resistance within Repsol to starting the claim on the basis that you might not recover anything? Or was the difference between the expected value? because we have made progress in our process. Doesn't mean that we recognize this is, uh, experience that nothing will be easy, straightforward. Uh, when I was making the comment of being expensive, uh, I was making that statement general. I'm not saying that we are a very rich company, but, but we are a pretty large company. We have, you know, we just announced uh, results uh, and he said, you know, we are able to recover from the YPF uh, uh, situation almost, and uh, we have, you know, net profits of 2 billion. So we can, as opposed to other companies, we, we are able to, to, to get the best counsel, the best experts, and we will continue to do that, and we haven't sacrificed at all any of the efforts. I don't think there has been any discussion at all within the company that we should pursue all available legal actions and try to have the best counsel that within the very good law firms that are sitting in this room. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think that we have sacrificed one penny, nor that within the company there is any debate about that. I think it's our obligation vis-a-vis -vis our shareholders and general stakeholders to make a proper defense. And, and to an extent, I think, and I was making a reference before that, there is also a level of 
responsibility as a responsible investor to be serious, and, and we are going to be serious. Having said that, our main objective is not to have the best award uh, and spend uh, dozens of millions, if not a few, in, in, in legal cost and so on. Uh, we want, we would like to have a settlement and on the basis of a fair compensation and flexibility, recognizing the practical and de facto situations, uh, is going to be our preferred. We are not in the industry of, of, of legal procedures, but so far, I think uh, we see progress. We see our, uh, you know, actions going forward. It's slow, but you know we are a few steps up, and we were <coughs> so we'll continue on that. It seems like no one's going to take up my cue, but um, maybe Andrea. Uh, my name is Andrea Saldarriaga, and I'm a fellow with the Bar Economia Center and also consultant on investment and uh, sustainability. I was just a comment about what you, Jan, was saying. You were saying at the beginning about this thinking. Perhaps you can talk a bit slower so you can hear me here as well. Okay, so my voice also is kind of like failing me today. Uh, uh, but my comment is about what Jan was saying in terms of the ongoing thinking about changing or reforming the system of investment protection. And uh, I'd like to draw this, your attention to the efforts of UNTA in this context and uh, the work that we've uh, been doing on uh, new generation of investment policies, which at the international level means a new generation of investment treaties. So investment treaties that basically introduce uh, provisions for maintaining the regulatory space of governments, and that means uh, provisions that are more detailed, that can work for the investor that are support the state, and uh, most importantly also treaties that balance the duties and obligations of uh, investors and the states. And uh, that means introducing, of course, and duties for investors, and uh, the correspondent right of states for bringing counter claims or original claims, and also the question about how to use, for example, corporate social responsibility standards in the framework of the treaties. So there are really a going debate um, at different levels, and the work of that have been quite advanced on that, and there is an open forum for anyone that is interested um, in um, commenting on these issues. I mean, commenting just on that, um, introducing corporate sus uh, 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 social responsibility into investment <laughs> treaty law, for many people, is like, oh, we don't want this, we don't want to mix things together. At the same time, I, my expectation, and I think maybe this case shows this quite neatly, because it's not only Chevron bidding for Vaca Muerta, it's also the, the Chinese uh, state oil company, if I'm not mistaken, which is, uh, has expressed its interest. Um, and if we look into countries like Sudan, for example, when Western countries who probably, uh, sorry, companies from Western countries which probably have a rather high standard <coughs> for complying with corporate social responsibility and are integrating that into their uh, 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 policies, um, when these countries move out, uh, sorry, when these companies move out and others move in, like China, for example, in Sudan, for picking up what um, the, uh, uh, the, the Canadians and prior to that the Europeans have loafed over, that also brings new questions. Will this really help sustainable development? So I think linking 
corporate social responsibility with investor protection is not as in per se a bad thing because it ultimately goes back to saying to what do you commit to what can the state expect what can investors expect so uh, ultimately i think being at least open to these questions in the discussion and then striking the right balance in the possible text that may be coming that is certainly something that uh, one uh, one should look forward to rather than reject outrightly um, even though it might be scary um, to some investors who so far or maybe rather to law firms which so far had the benefit of playing with uh, rather vague standards and being able to obtain maybe things that under let's say more civilized rules as we have them in the uh, uh, in the constitutional systems of most countries uh, would be possible. Manuel. Oh, um, so it's unlikely and you can sing. Um, Manuel Canales from LSC and the University of Valencia in Spain. Um, thank you for your presentation. Uh, I, I think we have here two independent issues. One of them is your case in particular. Uh, which raises legal concerns but not major legal concerns and on the other side the current um, revision of the EU investment policy in general. With regard to your case it seems that it's just about making sure that we can get out of this without losing too much. Uh, not about the legal debate as such or legal proceedings, it's just how, ma how much can we get and how do we get sure that we get it. Uh, and as simple as that. And in that sense, you have mentioned different fronts that you have opened, um, both legal proceedings and negotiations. I don't know to what extent um, you are trying to approach the Argentinian government, or you're just waiting for the Argentinian government to approach you, and that's something related to your own strategy. Uh, but what about uh, the idea of trying to block the exploitation of Paca Muerta in terms of uh, if you stop Paco Muerta from being exploited by Chevron or someone else, in that sense the Argentinian government will end up with an asset, massive asset, mm -hmm. that is of no use, or is not producing any money, which I guess in the end is what they wanted to obtain. So, uh, without asking politically incorrect questions, to what extent are you blocking or making sure that Paco Muerta is not exploited until uh, your problem is solved? That's my first question with regard to the uh, case, and the, uh, and the second question with regard to the this, uh, investment policy debate, um, you have suffered maybe that the government does not respond as much as you would have liked to protect the interests of, 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 of certain investors, and in Europe it's nowadays changing the profile from exporting, exporting um, investments to receiving investment and therefore being the receiving end of litigation and arbitration. Uh, do you think that the governments should protect in Europe when they negotiate internationally the protection of investors? Should be the, the voice, the spokesman of investors in the international negotiations of VATs? Or do you think they should represent a more fair representation of investors and citizens? Well, uh, stand up because I, I, I don't speak very loud, so it's... Uh, to your first question, are we trying to block third parties to do business with YPF? I would put it in a different way. We would like to protect YPF assets, which we think belong to us in directives. You can say, yeah, but what you are, the fact of doing is trying to block. 
Well, what we are saying, our, uh, our uh, claims are based on the fact that we believe that those third parties are taking an, a lawful benefit. And, and if you look into what is happening, and I then make again reference to Mr. Marjorie, uh, the Chief Executive of Totalism, this 